Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, with regards to the subject of divorce. And what I was explaining was the fact that there are some serious problems with Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 in English, that because of what we have in English, I personally believe that Jesus contradicted the Mosaic Law. And I explained my reasons for that in the previous program. And then I explained in the previous program that the answer to discrepancies or challenges or obstacles that we see in the scriptures quite often, the answers are usually found by going into the original language. The original languages that the scriptures were written in, in this case, in the Gospel of Matthew, people make the assumption that it was written in Greek. And so we go to the Greek and we examine the Greek and then we find out that the translation that we have from Greek into English is pretty good. It's not so bad. But I explained in the previous program that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he did not write his gospel in Greek. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew. And I gave the reference of one of the early church fathers, Papias, who was in the first half of the second century, and he wrote that Matthew collected the words in the Hebrew language and each translated them as best he could. So what we actually have when we read our Bibles in English, in Matthew, what we have is we have a translation from Greek, which is a translation from Hebrew. And the Hebrew that Matthew wrote is very difficult to get a hold of. But I explained in the previous program that it just so happens that I have a copy of his gospel that was written in Hebrew. It's certainly not the best, but it's pretty good, and so... With regards to my concerns, I found the answer to my concerns by studying the Gospel of Matthew written in Hebrew. Now, I explained in the previous program that Matthew's Hebrew wasn't so good. When Papias said that each translated the words as best they could, I don't think he was kidding. I think that they really did try and I have an appreciation for what they went through by going through Matthew's Hebrew myself. I personally believe that they put out some good effort. They would have to put out a lot of effort to try to translate it in the best way that they could from Hebrew into Greek. Because his Hebrew is not so good. Now, why would Matthew's Hebrew not be so good? I mean, how could I say such a thing? How could Papias imply such a thing? Well, please try to remember who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. And because he was a tax collector, he was not very well appreciated by the other Jews in the land of Israel. Do you suppose that Matthew would have been invited to the synagogue? Not a chance. 
If he showed up at the synagogue, do you think people would welcome him there? They would be so excited to see him there. Look, it's Matthew, the tax collector for the Romans. Isn't it great that he's joining us? Not a chance. Matthew was isolated from the people of Israel outside of the fact that he was taking money from them. He was isolated. He was not considered to be acceptable. He was not accepted within the community, especially in the synagogue. Now, if he was not allowed within the synagogue, under what circumstances would he have access to people who would speak to him in Hebrew? Because at that time in history, Hebrew was not used in the marketplace. Hebrew was the holy language. It still is. It is the sanctified language of God, and it was only used in the synagogue. When people went out of the synagogue and they talked with each other in the marketplace, they spoke Aramaic, which of course is similar to Hebrew, but it's still not the same. They spoke Aramaic, and so when Matthew spoke with the people, it's quite likely that he spoke to them in Aramaic. It's much less likely that he spoke to them in Greek, and even less likely than that that he spoke to them in Latin. But I want you to understand that Matthew did not have access to the place where people were speaking Hebrew. Hebrew was exclusive to the synagogue. He did not have access to the synagogue. He did not have access to people in order to practice his Hebrew, in order to develop his Hebrew, in order to keep up his Hebrew. He did not have that kind of access. Now, when he was with the disciples and the Lord Jesus, that would be a wonderful opportunity for him to begin to really build his skills with Hebrew. He would have more access in that sense. And I believe, personally, that that was a good opportunity for him. And I would be surprised if he didn't take advantage of it and develop his skill and understanding of the Hebrew language, especially while he was following the Lord Jesus. I would expect that to be the case. But regardless of that, I want you to understand that Matthew would not have had much of an opportunity to really develop his skill with Hebrew. So if that's the case, then why would he write his gospel in Hebrew? Why would he write his gospel in a language that he's not very skilled at? And of course, when I read what he wrote, I can see that he wasn't very skilled with the language, and so why would he do it? Well, if you examine the gospel, as many people have, you can see that there are some specific aspects of his gospel that will lead a person to recognize that the gospel that he wrote was for the Jews, that he was writing his gospel for a specific audience, that being the Jews there in Israel. And there are many people who have spoken about this, who have written articles and encyclopedias that we have at our disposal about this, and so this is nothing new. But what is new that I don't think many people fully acknowledge or recognize, new at least to these articles that I personally think should be in there, is the fact that if you are going to speak with a Jew at this time in history, and even at this time as in the time that we have right now, not just the time of the Lord Jesus, when I say in this time in history, I refer to that, but also in this time in history as in the time right now. If you're going to speak to a Jew about the living God, about the scriptures, about the Messiah, the language that is expected to be used is Hebrew. 
You never speak to a Jew about the things of God, about the things of the scriptures without speaking in Hebrew. Now, today in our societies, there are not that many Jews who know Hebrew. And those who do, they know the modern Hebrew, which is similar to the old Hebrew, but not quite the same. But even today, whenever I have conversations or discussions or arguments with my fellow Jews or rabbis who want to discuss this subject, we normally refer to Hebrew. People will say, well, Aaron, what does it say in the Hebrew? And I pull it out and I show them. I say, well, it says it right here. You read it. And if they are fortunate enough to be able to read what I show them, then we can continue the discussion. But in many cases, they can't even read it. It's a serious obstacle of illiteracy that exists in many cases, not just with those Jews who do not know Hebrew at all, but in some cases with those Jews who know the modern Hebrew, but they don't know the older Hebrew. There can be some conflicts and some complications because of assumptions that people make. My point, though, is that I want you to understand that you do not speak with a Jew about the things of God during the time when Matthew was writing his gospel without speaking in Hebrew. Otherwise, it is immediately considered to be defiled. It is immediately considered to be unacceptable. The testimony would not be received because of the language barrier. And this language barrier exists not just because people are unwilling to speak about these subjects in any other language besides Hebrew, but also because people believe that without using that language, you cannot communicate the things of God. It's a very serious matter that I believe many people ignore or completely underestimate the significance of. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to be aware that this is extremely significant. And for Matthew to put out the effort, put out the effort to write at least what he did, I think is phenomenal. Considering the obstacles that Matthew faced in terms of having skill with that language, I think he did a fabulous job, an exceptional job, that he should be recognized for that. For Papias to give the impression that he wasn't so good with his language, you know he's right. But on the other hand, considering how good he was... I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. And I enjoy reading what he wrote when I have the opportunity to do so. Now, when looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 in the English, there are all kinds of conclusions that people come to. But regardless of what people think, when they live by Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, regardless of all of that, I want you to know that it's all wrong that this is the simple way of dealing with Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. You know, people will pull out that verse and they will beat people to no end with all these things that I described in the previous programs. And the subject of divorce and adultery and remarriage in the way that they, that they use it does not exist. It simply does not exist in this verse. That the entire discussion that people have, all the papers that people have written, all the books that they have written, all the sermons that they have given, all of that is, I'm going to use the word trash. It's trash. It's absolutely worthless. It's nothing. Because that's not what Matthew said. Matthew did say something very important. But it has nothing to do with what people think he said. It is something entirely different. 
Now, I have taken the time to translate this verse. This is what I think it says. I have a word-for-word translation that I'm not going to give you because it's extremely difficult. And I have a thought-for-thought translation, which I'll give you, but I'm not going to give you this translation as if it is the absolute authority concerning this translation. That's not the purpose for me doing this. And so if you want to try to transcribe this audio file, please make a note of that, that this is just a paraphrase, to use that word, because just as Pappy has said, I'm translating this as best I can, and to understand the challenges that a translator is faced with, I think you can appreciate what I mean when I say that this is not supposed to be etched in stone, this is etched in jello, but I do believe that the jello is firm enough that I personally have the questions that I have answered. I have them answered because of what I can determine from what is written here. So, having said that, this is what I believe Matthew wrote. It says, Still, Jesus said to his disciples, You heard what was said before of a husband who was bereaved over the leaving of his wife. He will give her things to take to include a divorce. And I am saying to you that if a husband is bereaved over his wife's leaving and among the things given to her is also a divorce, that if he says she left to commit adultery, he is the adulterer, and if he takes her back, he will commit adultery again. Still, Jesus said to his disciples, You heard what was said before of a husband who was bereaved over the leaving of his wife. He will give her things to take, to include a divorce, and I am saying to you that if a husband is bereaved over his wife's leaving, and among the things given to her is also a divorce, that if he says she left to commit adultery, he is the adulterer, and if he takes her back, he will commit adultery. This is the situation. It's very simple. A woman decides to leave her husband. That's the situation. Can she do that? Of course she can. I have just finished several programs where I have given you the law. I have explained the law and the situations that could easily develop that would give a woman the freedom to divorce, which in effect is any situation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. There doesn't have to be any sin involved at all. She does not require her husband to commit a sin to leave him. She doesn't need that. The law allows her to leave her husband under circumstances that don't require sin. That's the situation. And obviously, he does not want her to leave him. The word that Matthew chose to use, bereaved, is a word that is used in various places in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 27, verse 45, by Isaac, when he was speaking with Jacob about the anger of his brother Esau, to describe his losing both of his sons in one day. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 33, Samuel used this word when speaking to Agag, king of the Amalekites. Samuel told Agag that his sword had made women childless, and his mother would also be childless among women. This word was used to describe the pain a woman would feel if she lost all of her children. 
You can look throughout the scriptures to see examples of this word. This man is seriously depressed about his wife leaving. He does not want his wife to leave. He doesn't want her to leave at all. But because she wants to leave, he is required to certify this divorce. And we can see that he also gave her some things to take. But it doesn't mean that he was obligated to do so. This is the situation that Matthew describes that the Lord Jesus spoke about. And then what he says is that the man makes a false accusation. A false accusation. He claims that she left to commit adultery. That's what he says. He says, well, she left me because she wanted to commit adultery. He really wanted her to be his wife, but she wanted to commit adultery, and so she left, and now she's committing adultery. But this is a false accusation. What happens if you make a false accusation? Well, according to the law, you must know the law in order to understand this. According to the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21, This is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21. If it was determined that the accused was not guilty of the accusation, the accuser would be punished with the punishment that would have been imposed on the accused. And so according to the law, because he made this false accusation, he should be punished with the punishment of an adulterer. I believe that in this way, Jesus declares that the man is an adulterer because he made a false accusation and according to the law, he should be punished accordingly because of the false accusation. Folks, this has nothing to do with divorce. It has nothing to do with adultery. It has nothing to do with whether you can remarry or not remarry, or whether you commit adultery by remarrying, or anything like that at all. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It has to do with making false accusations. Now, this is a very important thing to see, because if you don't see this, I don't think you can fully appreciate what Jesus says after this in the following verses, where he begins to talk about the subject in depth, in a greater way. This is something that I spoke about when I did the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the series I did on the Sermon on the Mount, where I spoke about this more with regards to the implications concerning false accusations and how this blends in with the following passages, because it does blend in. What we have here in verses 31 and 32 don't fit, because they don't fit. They're not supposed to fit. They can't fit very well, not only because what is said here in English contradicts the Mosaic Law, but also because it's a bad translation. It's a translation from the Greek, which is a translation from the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, this is what it actually says. Now, this word divorce that we have here in the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to know that this word is not the emphasis of this subject. Adultery isn't the emphasis of the subject. It's false accusations. But divorce is the least, the least emphasized word In the words that Matthew wrote, in fact, he didn't even use the word divorce in Hebrew. He didn't even use that word. He used a transliteration from Latin, which I believe he probably would have known a lot more Latin than Hebrew. 
He didn't use the Hebrew word for divorce. And the way that he put the word divorce there in a transliterated Latin was to say it as an afterthought. That it just so happens that in addition, yes, there was a finalization of the relationship that his wife left him and he certified that. That is what it says. It is not the emphasis of this verse at all. These things that people struggle with, they should not exist. The things that people teach are based on something that does not exist. I am not going to apologize at all for saying that. I'm also not going to hold it against people because they do not have access to the manuscript that I have translated from to include having the ability to translate it. I'm not trying to express any condemnation towards people because of this. That's not my purpose. I do believe that people should at least say that there is some uncertainty, that there are some contradictions. People should have at least said that. But people don't. They give these absolute statements where they say, this is it, this is the only way, it's what I have told you, and if you don't like it, you can go to hell. That's how people relate to each other. And folks, I'm telling you that when I was uncertain about this, when I didn't have access to the manuscript that I have access to right now, there was a period of time when I did not, I was honest. And I said, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I believe that there's a problem here, but I don't know why, and I don't know the answer That will reconcile these discrepancies that I believe exist, and so I will wait. But there are people who will not wait. They really, really want to use this verse, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, to address the subject of divorce and remarriage. But folks, it's not here. This is about false accusations. Now, there's another passage in Matthew, and that is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, please pay attention to this. There is a lot to be considered here. I read the entire section just in order to give you the context. That Certainly, Jesus had a lot to say. He said, Listen, you know, at the beginning it wasn't like this. This wasn't the issue. I want you to see that, but I also want you to see that the Pharisees asked him a question. 
And then they asked him another question. The first question that they asked him was, is it lawful for a man to divorce? They asked him that question. He said, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be like this. So he doesn't say yes or no until verse 8, where he says that Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. And of course, Moses told the people what God said. It was actually God who permitted divorce by giving divorce to the people through the Mosaic law. And so he does answer the question later, but he doesn't do it right away. He does answer the question by saying it is lawful in the sense that it is in the law. That is a very important question. The other question that they asked him was, why did Moses allow people to divorce? So first they ask him, is it in the law? Then they ask him, why is it in the law? He does eventually answer and he says, yes, it is in the law. And he does answer and he says it's because of the hardness of people's hearts. There is, of course, a lot that needs to be said about this. And I am going to have to talk about this in the next program because I'm out of time for this one. But I want you to see this. I want you to understand that we have another verse here that speaks about divorce. And Jesus says in this verse, in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The same questions that I asked, the same complications that I saw in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, are here as well. The same things, the same issues, with some exceptions, of course. I mean, here it says that if a man divorces his wife for any reason, then he commits adultery. That's a little bit different from Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. In Matthew chapter 5, the woman commits adultery, either because she actually did and he divorced her because of it, or she does because he divorces her and therefore she commits adultery, or he causes her to commit adultery. But in this case, he commits adultery as well. So we do have a little bit of a difference, but I want you to see that the same issues that I raised before are going to be raised here as well. And so this verse has to be examined, and the solution will be found in the same way by looking at the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew. And I will explain this in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.